Hi guys, welcome to episode three of Simply Medics. Hi. We hope you enjoyed the last week's episode. Um, thank you for listening. Yes, and thank you so much for the feedback. So today we're just going to cover a few things. We're going to talk a bit about this new virus that everyone's been talking about, coronavirus. Mm-hmm. We're also going to talk a bit about donation in the black community and why it's sort of a taboo topic and why lots of us are not willing to put our names down on the donor registers. And then lastly, we're going to have a bit about a talk about medical school placements, our experiences, the do's and don'ts of placements, you know, that sort of thing. Cool, cool. Okay, so on to our first topic. We're going to talk a bit about coronavirus. So coronavirus, you guys probably know, has been in the news quite a bit this week because um, I think it started about 31st of December. December. Yeah. Coronavirus said, new year, new me. <laughs> And it followed us into 2020. <laughs> so I think there's been a bit of, would you say hysteria? I would say a bit of hysteria. Yeah, because obviously some people have died through it. Quite mm-hmm. a lot of people have been infected. So we mm. thought we did a bit of research and just kind of um, let you know what what government officials say mm-hmm. and what research says about mm. the coronavirus out yeah. there. And just to kind of like educate people as yeah, well. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and the thing about coronavirus is that coronavirus itself has been around from about the 60s. But this specific strain of virus is relatively new and not a lot is known about it. Um, just like any respiratory tract virus, you get, you know, the sort this kind of symptoms that you see with like a flu or a cold. Mm-hmm. So that's like runny nose, headache, a cough, um, just feeling run down in general. But with coronavirus, you can get quite severe symptoms. So you can get a bit of a bit of breathlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? You can get fever. Yeah, fever. And um, there was something else. It's just the, so fever, breathlessness mm. and dry cough. Oh yeah, dry cough. The dry cough, yeah. Yeah. So those are kind of the main symptoms to look out for. Um, especially if you've travelled back from the specific province in China. So um, Wuhan. 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 Yeah. <laughs> then you're obviously, if you have any of the symptoms, you want to get seen to. However, if you, if you are in the UK, there's no need to be in arms about it or start thinking you might have coronavirus, especially since currently there isn't a, there isn't um, a single positive case. So don't start thinking just because you've got a bit of a cough and everyone knows that you have this virus. Mm. You probably just have a common cold. Yeah. Um. So yeah, just and if you do have a common cold, take the exact same precautions you would if you did have this virus. Yeah. What is coronavirus for people who don't know? So it's um, an upper respiratory tract virus. Okay. Um, it's kind of similar to the SARS virus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's like a group of viruses. Yeah. Um, and obviously within that group you have different strains. So this current strain is currently called the novel coronavirus. Yeah. Just because novel means that it's new and there's not a lot of current information about it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of statistics out there that talk about sort of potential mortality rates and reproductive rates, but nothing is concrete because obviously it's it's been around for probably not even a month not even a month yeah Yeah. um so data is still being collected um to try and figure out what these rates are going to be and obviously still an ongoing outbreak Mm. so nobody knows how it's going to pan out currently it's quite interesting the way it started because um so it obviously started in wuhan Mm. china and they said it originally was in like markets Mm -hmm. so like markets selling wild animals and seafood so initially they thought it was animal to person transmission but people have been there and gone to different parts of the world and it's been like a month later and they're still getting it so that's why they think it's person to person Person. yeah Mm. so um you mentioned already some of the things we can do to Mm -hmm. kind of stop the spread um I think from what I was reading, they were saying it's mostly like when you come into contact with an infected person. Mm -hmm. So when you sneeze, there's air droplets and Mm. you inhale that and then that can trigger you to become infected. Mm -hmm. So just kind of you people that sneeze, you don't cover your mouth. Yeah. Forget coronavirus. This is my message to you. Cover your mouth, please. Exactly. Use a tissue or your sleeve or your hand, anything. Yeah. Good hand hygiene as well. Washing your hands. After using the toilet, washing your hands with antibacterial gel, if you have any on you, after you've coughed or sneezed, yeah. just to prevent those droplets from spreading. Because you may sneeze on your hands and then you still have th- that virus on mm-hmm. your hand and everything you touch then becomes infected. Yeah. 
Uh, I've been on the bus so many times. You'll see someone sneeze. Achoo. And you see the hand. Yeah. Itchy towards oh. the, the, the bell to press the bus, the bus bell. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. dude, what are you doing? I've always thought that buses are like a breeding ground for infection. Listen. Because people just be sneezing anywhere into the open bus. People be sneezing on their hands and touching things. You can't sit on the bus and then come and sit in your yard. Like, nah, you need to. <laughs> yeah, that's what? why one of the first things I do, like, even though I drive now, mm. As soon as I get home, the first thing I do is wash my hands mm-hmm. thoroughly because you don't know what you've touched, mm-hmm. what handles you've touched. Mm-hmm. And things like that mundane things you do every day. Mm-hmm. Like you can have droplets lingering on different services. Yeah. You're touching it, like opening your doors, mm-hmm. carrying your shopping, touching yeah. trolleys and your hands aren't clean and you just go and eat. And just for general kind of hygiene purposes. Exactly. Yeah. Because I remember when swine flu came out, I think I was in high school at that time. Mm. And there was like a massive drive by the government and Public Health England I remember, yeah. to advertise hand washing. I think there was even a song. Do you remember? <laughs> My friend. <laughs> there was a song. My friend and I made a song up. Did you really? Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> there was actually, a, I remember there was a song that was playing on TV. Yeah. And it was like, it had Catch it, bin it, kill it. it catch it being it kill it yeah i remember and it was like it was a really good message for people and i still think that although there's not we don't have swine flu or whatever just in general like if you are feeling unwell or you're not even if you're not feeling unwell you know wash your hands mm. and if you are you have a cold or a viral infection whatever sneeze on a piece of tissue if you have one put it in the bin yeah and then wash your hands mm. for yourself and those around you yeah but one thing about um, back to coronavirus that um, I think it's important to let people know. So from what we've read, the people who have unfortunately um, died from being infected by the virus, they were quite old yeah. or they were immunocompromised. Yeah. So that means they have some underlying condition, which means their body's not readily able to fight the disease yeah. as much as someone that's kind of our age yeah. would do. So. Yeah. People shouldn't really be alarmed if you're probably what, under 64, mm. fit and healthy, mm-hmm. you're eating well, you're sleeping well, you and you have a very good immune system. Uh, it, it might be like having a bit of a flu or yeah. common cold, but your body will fight it. Exactly. Yeah. So for for people who are genuinely fit and well, don't sort of, you know, like, although the media was talking a lot about this virus, don't sort of take it as like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get it and die. Mm. Because in fact, it, like Moyo was saying, that if you are, under the age of 64 if you are unhealthy if you don't have any medical conditions at the present there is a great chance that your body will fight it like Mm. any viral infection if you're fit and well you are able to fight it off yeah so i think it's important to because we are just medical students so we always kind of like um just always say you know make sure you always see a doctor about Mm -hmm. this so if someone is worried like they've been to china recently Mm -hmm. and they're not feeling well you know, um, what advice what advice is out there for people who mm. aren't feeling great after visiting? Mm-hmm. So we had a look at Public Health England and they said, yeah. if you've been to that region of or province of China within mm. the last 14 days. Yeah. No, sorry. If after you've come back and within 14, 14 days, days, you develop respiratory symptoms. So you might have a bit of a temperature. You mm. might be having a bit of body aches and a running nose. But it's the respiratory symptoms because... Um, Viral pneumonia is one of the complications. So if you're now struggling to breathe, getting really short of breath, that's when they say you should see a doctor. So if you think that's you, I'll definitely recommend that you book an appointment. And they said as well to make sure you warn them ahead that you might think... That you have it. Yeah, because they need to take precautions precautions. as well. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Because you don't want an outbreak happening. If someone does have it and then they go into a space where there's other sick people, then those people are even at a higher chance of getting ill. So definitely... But I was I was thinking um back to twenty fourteen when Ebola broke out. Oh yeah. And we are getting a lot better at containing these yeah, things. We're getting really great at handling um yeah like epidemics. Yeah. Um have you I think I asked you, have you watched Ninety Three Days on I haven't, Netflix? I haven't, not yet. It's good. It's a bit of channel five movie acting, <laughs> but it's it's still good and um I don't know, obviously it was in Western Africa, so I took mm. a bit of um, interest in the mm-hmm. Ebola virus and it just showed how Dr. Stella Adadova, I think that's her name, so her and her team, they managed to um, detain this Liberian diplomat who basically, they screened at the airport and he had a temperature mm. and he was like, no, I don't have Ebola, like, let me go. The Liberian government were getting involved and yeah, they showed the whole story, but wow. they were so adamant, they were like, 
this is our patient zero yeah and you're not leaving and then one morning they found him like he was he died in the hospital wow. like he hemorrhaged because i think it was like a, it's a hemorrhagic yeah, it's a hemorrhagic, yeah, yeah kind of disease so and obviously everyone had been in contact with him so all the staff contracted it and they built some facility to kind of get them better unfortunately quite a lot of them passed away yeah. but because of their determination screening at the airport and detaining that patient mm. isolating that patient it didn't break out in yeah. nigeria and it's quite scary because it's one of the most populous countries in the yeah. world so you don't want people flying back and forth because there's a lot of us in the diaspora as well you fly back home yeah mm. So imagine like everyone that's just been to Ghana, Nigeria for Christmas. I seen and all of them landing back. And you're thinking yeah. about Ebola. It's funny because I actually I think I flew to Ghana twice during that Ebola Ebola time. Yeah, were they and screening a yeah, lot? Yeah, they was. So when you go through the airport, they even did it after the outbreak. Actually, yeah. When you were going through the airport, they had thermal cameras, so everyone had to stand, and then the thermal camera. There was someone sat at the desk, and then they they have like a thermal camera. They look at you up and mm. down the camera, and then you walk through. If if something's wrong they take the person and then they, they take him to like an isolation place mm. so yeah it's was, was like wow you know we're improving yeah do you think though someone could have like a temperature but no. feel okay it's, it's difficult and yeah. if they have a temperature and they've been taking paracetamol then they probably will feel okay yeah fair enough but if they have a temperature and they're not taking anything it's probably unlikely that they may feel okay yeah i just remember because yesterday i took this guy's temperature mm. it was quite high it was like 38 but he seemed absolutely fine Huh. But then I think he might have had paracetamol. Yeah, so, so usually if you've had some paracetamol, that yeah. kind of helps you feel a bit better. Yeah. Oh, cool. So on to the next thing. We're going to talk a bit about um, donations, um, in specific, specifically in regards to the Afro-Caribbean community. Yeah, so um, quite a lot of my friends were sharing this post on Instagram. So... Um, if you guys have Instagram, her name is Leah J. So that's L-E-A-H underscore J-A-E underscore. Um, and um, I think it touched a lot of people. It's got like over 50,000 likes. So I'm just going to mm. read it to you. And we're, then that inspired us to talk about just donation. So she says, I never thought I would have to do this, but I need your help. Dear friends, some of you may know that 11 years ago, at the age of 17, I was diagnosed with lupus, an autoimmune disease where my immune system is basically seeing it, um, sorry, attacking my organs. Since then, life has been a roller coaster, from blood clots in my lung to pericarditis to lupus, eventually attacking my kidneys, resulting in them failing. In 2015, I began my dialysis treatment, going to a centre three times a week for four hours each time so that my blood could be filtered in order to keep me alive. It was physically exhausting and mentally draining. But then that day came, 9th of February 2016, I got a call. I was having a kidney transplant. I was over the moon and thought that was the end of my own ongoing health issues. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Last year, I contracted sepsis three times. The hospital has always been my second home. But 2019 was the worst year ever. I was admitted to hospital seven times and also ended up in intensive care. I would ask myself, why was this happening? But I guess I'll never know. The sepsis has affected my transplanted kidney and I've been given the news that it's now in the process of failing again. The function is currently at 15% and once it hits 10%, I'll have to go back to dialysis, which is why I need a second kidney transplant. I've always said my biggest fear is having to go through this whole process again, which is why I've written this post. My 20s has been one big wall of stress and I want to feel normal again. Thousands of people are on the waiting list for a deceased donor. It could take months, years, or could never happen. The other option is receiving a kidney from a living donor, which has the best chance of survival. It's not easy writing this post, but without doing this, I'll be missing out on giving someone the opportunity to help. So I ask that all you do is share my post and maybe, just maybe, someone out there will consider helping me live a longer and healthier life. So that's quite... um that's quite an interesting sad story it is yeah and it's unfortunate because lupus is, is although we don't see them talked about i know a few people know like about um, selena gomez and yeah she had lupus and she had a, a kidney transplant yeah so when that's not talked a lot about but it's quite common in the black community yeah obviously not as common like sickle cell and stuff but mm. it's quite common it's unfortunate that it affects it affects sort of all your all your um, all your blood vessels yeah more or less and your kidney, unfortunately, is the most susceptible. 
mm. because it has the smallest blood vessels running through it. Yeah. And it has quite a lot of blood vessels that um that help with the sort of that help that part of the filtration of blood, mm. like glomerulus and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, all all your different sort of um vessels that are in your kidneys. So it's sad. It's sad that someone so young tends to go through this. Yeah. Having to have repeated dialysis, having to have potentially a second kidney done and it's a second yeah. kidney. Um and the worst thing is that as black people We don't donate. We don't donate. When, yeah. Whether it's blood, whether it's bone marrow or whether it's organs. Yeah. Okay, I'll be honest, for me, I, I always think I'm willing so I've donated blood before. Something that I know will be regenerated, mm-hmm. blood, bone marrow, happy to donate mm-hmm. that. But I don't know what it is about organ donation. Yeah. I just feel like that's it's a it's a part of my my body. Mm-hmm. But then, if God forbid, like a family member ever needed one, would I consider probably, but just to kind of donate for just to be on the register. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people maybe feel the same way I do. So I don't know. Should we take a look at blood first? Because that's something that yeah. y- you give away and it grows back again, yeah. but still it's not really reflecting yeah. in the amount of donors we have. Yeah. Well, according to statistics from the NHS. Um, about one percent of all donors are black people, and it's quite unfortunate. Yeah. I'm very, I'm sure that lots of black people know that sickle cell is quite prevalent in our community. Yeah. Um, especially sort of like the West African um community. Absolutely. Yeah. Or even communities where malaria is quite common, because obviously having sickle cell trait yeah makes you um it decreases your chance of getting malaria it's a protective yeah um, and it's unfortunate that you know you can have the trait marry someone or have children with someone who has the trait and then end up with kids who have sickle cell yeah and they have to spend their life dealing with the the different types of crisis that you get in sickle cell yeah so for those who might not know about sickle cell should we just do like a very very simple intro yeah. into what it is mm-hmm. so he's mentioned the kind of traits and genes and protective factors mm-hmm. and all that so um it's a it's basically a, a blood disease yeah and it affects the way your blood cells are kind of shaped shaped yeah. yeah so when we say traits um there are different types of traits yeah so everybody has two traits mm-hmm. so let's say you're aa mm-hmm. and i'm as mm-hmm. And when you have a child together, one trait from each person essentially joins together. Mm-hmm. And if the child gets an SS trait, mm-hmm. then they'll have sickle cell. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you can either be a carrier, you can be a you can not have any of the the any of the, the chromosomes, or you yeah. can just you know um, actually have the disease itself. Yeah. And it's. I don't know if anybody knows of anybody who has sickle cell, but if you do know or you have registered about people who have it, it it's quite a debilitating disease. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, what what they require is regular transfusions. Mm. Um, just because the blood cell is shaped in a simple shape, which is basically a bit like a moon or a crescent. A crescent, yeah. And because of the way it's shaped, it means that oxygen isn't able to effectively go around their body. So in times of when they get like really cold or they get ill. Um, they don't get enough oxygen and then you get different types of crisis. There's like a whole different list, but we're not going to go into it. Um, so they need regular blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that with blood, I think everyone knows about blood groups, the ABO. You know, like whether you're A, you're B or you're O. Yeah. So that's your ABO compatibility. Then you have your recess group. So when everyone says, oh, I'm B positive, that means they're B out of the ABO and they're recess positive. So rhesus is another subtype of blood. Now, although everyone knows about those two, those major two, and those tend to be the, the main two they look at when they're looking at um, blood, transfusions. blood transfusions, you know, cross-matching and stuff like that. There's other subtypes that are more common in black people. Mm. And that subtype is the role subtype. Yeah, I didn't know this. <laughs> yeah, so the role subtype is more common in black people. And as a result, that means that more donors who are role, pos- role positive yeah, I know it's unfortunate that we don't have like it says in the stats only one percent of donors are black. Yeah, you know what I mean. And hasn't there been like an increased demand? Yeah. You said about eighty yeah. percent or something. Yeah, apparently over the past three years, yeah, eighty percent increase. I mean, I've been asking this question and I've still not found an answer. Like, why don't we donate blood? 
what is it within our community that's stopping us from donating something that we're going to grow back again within what 90 days exactly yeah well i've always wanted to donate whether it's my blood or it themselves or whatever like i think i told you before that i'm i'm on the bone marrow donor list yeah now i remember i did it with that to my parents and i did tell my parents <laughs> that i signed up to be a donor a donor um for my bone marrow they were not very happy um initially i mean overall yeah but they weren't happy because they were like oh what you know you never know what they're going to do with it or um how is that going to affect you or stuff like that so you think there's a lot of misconceptions yeah i think the whole donor donation or whether it's blood whether it's bone marrow whether it's organs is lack of information mm. out there people don't really know what each thing entails yeah so blood donation is pretty quick and simple yeah i'm happy to tell you about it because um i had i donated blood about two years ago mm-hmm. so um i wrote a blog post about yeah. um, blood transfusions and whatnot and i was just like i can't just be here preaching and not actually, <laughs> not actually doing anything yeah. so i think i went on boxing day um it's quite a long-winded process mm. but you you come to like um the blood bank drive mm. or whatever and they get you to sign up they check all your health so like if i'd recently come back from an area where they yeah. had like i don't know Ebola or um, coronavirus and obviously i wouldn't be able to give mm-hmm. so they check that you're fit and well to give blood and then they make you drink water water yeah. water water, water. Yeah. yeah and then um that helps them find find your veins as well and mm. then they essentially insert a normal blood needle actually it's actually quite big but i'm i'm okay with needles but it's very quick and they yeah. tape it down and then um it's connected to a bag and then they give you this ball to squeeze now you're supposed to squeeze the ball for 10 seconds and then release it for 10 seconds however the instructions given to me weren't clear so i squeezed the ball for the duration oh for the duration of my blood donation oh yeah so that meant i basically gave a pint of blood in a very short time oh my goodness. compared to what it was supposed to be because yeah. the lady got some and she was like oh you done already i was just like yeah i squeezed the ball and she was like well okay <laughs> so i don't think she knew what she was doing and then um they give you like a snack after and make sure you drink mm. more water because they don't want you collapsing on the way yeah. home so i'd say it took about maybe an hour and a half mm. but i just i was on my phone had a book to read and whatnot so mm. it was quite a good experience and um Unfortunately, <laughs> because I didn't squeeze the ball and then release it for 10 seconds, I had chest pain the next day. Oh, my goodness. And I called them, and then they were like, yeah, you can't donate blood for two years now because of this. So wow. now I'm ready to do it properly. Yes, yes, yes. But um, I felt absolutely, f- apart from the chest pain, that was my fault. I didn't do it properly. But mm. regardless of that, I felt absolutely fine. Like, I wasn't having any signs of like anemia so mm. feeling faint or tired after and the body reproduces your red blood cells every 90 days yeah. anyway mm-hmm. so I was absolutely fine and I'd be happy to give it again so I'd say if you do have any misconceptions about it hopefully this can kind of educate you yes. there's a lot of information on um like British oh what's it called the heart people not the heart people but there's like a British donor thing where yeah. you sign up donor, they have a lot of yeah so they have a lot of information Mm. your gp can probably tell you about it if you're at uni as well we've got quite a few unis have like a marrow we have one here you were part of it and they they have the information to tell Mm -hmm. you so sometimes i feel like misconception can stop us from doing things but it's just like i gave my blood i was fine and then that blood has been there to help someone with sickle cell because it's needed in the black community exactly yeah and it's and that's what you're saying like blood is one of those things after mm-hmm. like two to three months so if you can oh if you can give blood then you should definitely you know do it if you're not currently ill or you've not given blood in the past or stuff like that you know like if there's nothing excluding you from doing it i feel like it's something that you should do mm-hmm. to, to help the community you know yeah so what about organ see i wouldn't mind putting my name on the organ donation list Mm. what if i was to pass away for specific organs to be donated yeah because you have life donation as well as you have deceased donations when you die you can choose there's an opt-in system okay so at the moment 
I thought I, I always get messages on WhatsApp. Do you get them as well? Yes, I do. Yes, I get them. I was going to even opt out. Yeah. Yeah. So the government was thinking of doing an opt out where every single person name will be on the register. Yeah. You opt out to mm. whether or not you don't want to be a donor. But at the moment in time as we're speaking, it's currently an opt in. Okay. Um. Now, I would opt in to donate specific organs. Like what organs? So I would donate my cornea. Okay. I would donate um kidney. Yeah. Um, I actually wouldn't mind doing a live donation of a bit of my liver because you know your, your, your liver grows. Your liver, yeah, your, your yeah. liver um, regenerates itself. Yeah. So I wouldn't mind doing a live donation for my liver or even a kidney if I had to. But as a deceased donor, I wouldn't mind cornea, kidney, liver. My heart, I'm a bit iffy about. But I feel like the heart, I'm a bit iffy about. Is there any reason? Um, because usually the heart has to still be be has to still be beating before they take it out. Ah. Uh, so if I was like brainstem dead, mm. then fine. Then uh, I just don't know. I'm always a bit iffy about heart donation personally. Yeah. But I don't know how I feel about heart and lungs. I just don't know. You're a better person than I am. I'm very, <laughs> and I don't think it's the cause of not knowing the information. I just, I just don't know why. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's sad to mm. say, but um, yeah, that's just me personally. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a sticky one because we've not even common blood, very common blood. We yeah. don't give so yet to talk about organ. And essentially, this is what this girl Leah yeah. Leah Day was asking for for a kidney because she's black, so yeah. she'll need someone that's probably her age, yeah. that's her ethnicity, so it's less likely to be rejected by yeah. her body. Yeah. And I hope I hope she finds someone. Yeah, I hope same. like this platform can be helped to use her. Exactly. And I hope that also like discussing about this will sort of open the eyes of people, mm. not just in our community but in um, other ethnic minorities, yeah. to go out there and want to give more. Yeah, because it's not just it always says black and Asian don- yeah. donors are needed. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I think it's important because obviously. Although we're a minority in this country, there's still quite a lot of us in population. Yeah. You know, so it's important that we... Because it's not even a thing about, oh, you know, race, this, race, that. It's actually that there was different... There was differences within each race. Yeah. Whether we like it or not. Yeah. It's not just a colour thing. It goes down to, like, we're talking about the blood group subtypes and what, what subtype is more common in um, black communities. Yeah. There is genuine differences. And there is, there is a need for... There to be an increased awareness of this yeah. in our communities. I think that's what it is. People don't understand that actually there are differences in our within different communities, and as yeah. a result, we need to do more. Yeah, and it's quite good though. There are some people there, like I see them on the news pushing mm. for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, someone! I feel like this gospel choir. It might have been the one that sang at Meghan and Harry's um, oh, wedding. Lady. I think they they released a song to like kind of encourage people to because okay. I think one of their members um yeah. like required a donation and then um we mentioned them on the last podcast mm. Melon Medics they done like a blood drive in London yes, 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 yes. and people that. to to sign mm. up and stuff so um I think I'm gonna donate blood I can do it again probably soon mm-hmm. recently so I'm inviting you guys to kind of join me um just literally type on Google donate blood you'll find your nearest center and then you just fill out forms and it's trust me it's so simple because i i filled out a form to donate blood yeah you kept to send me you kept to calling me actually telling me i'm gonna book appointments yeah because i kept on like i was like yeah i'll do it i'll do it eventually i did book an appointment mm. i did turn up and they put on my veins so yeah. yeah that ended real quick but i yeah. will do it again i'll definitely try i feel like tips tips for if you're gonna have a blood test or even donate blood you got to be warm, mm. very warm. I was kind of cold and hadn't drunk enough water. Yeah, even if you have, like, a tea or coffee before yeah. and then drink water on top, make sure your hands are warm. Mm. It's easy for them to find veins. But we were saying earlier, it's a bit... Um, I wouldn't know how to do it and take bloods in a black person because yeah. I've never I've never had to do it. Yeah. But then the, the population where we're studying is Caucasian, yeah. so... It's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. I think um, medical students need more practice in countering, like, different ethnicity skin types yeah i agree because things show up differently yeah but that's going to be a topic for a different day that's a whole that's a whole that's a whole discussion (laughs) the shade i'm gonna throw oh my goodness (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so next, so, um, on to our next topic, we're going to talk a bit about medical school placements. Yay! So, Moyo, you're currently in your third year. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing you've been to, like, three or four different hospitals since you started medical school. Yeah. So, tell us a bit about how life was when you first started your placement in second year. I was really nervous mm-hmm. <laughs> when I cast my mind back to it, because our first year, it's all uni-based, and mm. you do some stuff in like a skills lab but it's like wow I'm actually going to be allowed to, <laughs> to, to, to touch a patient so I felt really nervous I was like all these things were running through my mind like oh are they going to like me yeah what am I going to say like are they going to ask me questions and I'm not going to know the answer like am I going to be able to do something so, so mundane to me now is blood pressure properly oh so you just feel really really yeah. really nervous yeah. but you know what, I think it's, it's good to be nervous because mm-hmm. it shows that you're excited, you're looking forward to it, but you also recognise the, the limitations of like where you currently are. But um, I had a really, really good, um, what do you call it, placement partner in second yeah. year. Like We really complemented each other mm-hmm. and I think that's what made the difference. Yeah. So like we kind of, when we're taking a history, so that's when we just speak to patients, find out what they've come in for any questions I forgot she would kind of ask them yeah. and vice versa yeah. and then like any kind of skills she needed to get signed up with like spend half the day sorting yeah. it out and then my my stuff as well so I think that's what made me really enjoy mm. my placement and I think um I remember this day vividly in second year so I was on a medicine placement um I went to AMU and the doctor said okay go speak to this lady take a patient from her and she was very very jaundiced like so jaundice is just when you're yellow everywhere was like skin wow. eyes everything was very jaundiced and we took a history we spoke to her she was a lovely lady yeah. and then we just explored a bit more and then I was like okay I know what she has because I'd read it before yeah. and it was that day where everything tied together like wow. what I'd read and, and what I'd seen yeah. and I was able to kind of figure out the diagnosis mm-hmm. I was like wow mm-hmm. and I feel like sometimes because of the pressure of placement mm-hmm. and learning it doesn't happen as often mm. but when it does that consolidates your knowledge yeah. so so much it's even more sweeter than you yeah like okay although it's sad seeing people who are ill but when you do see someone yeah and then you've just like so you just learned something yeah. And you see, you're like, oh my goodness, like you're actually able to recall the information that you've learned. Yeah. Like, oh wow, it's, it's, it kind of makes the degree a bit, a bit more interesting. Yeah. It's like, wow, oh, I just can't believe I just saw this. Like, yeah. I was read about this about a week ago. Mm. So yeah, those are, those are quite So that's one thing I really like about placement. Mm. And for all the complaints we have, <laughs> one thing our med school does well, I think it's very good that we start pay, um, placements in second yeah. year. Because traditionally, I think is it like three years of learning and, and then three years of placement. Three years of placement yeah. But then, like you have these people with like like you'll be very smart, fair enough. But you're you don't really know how to speak to mm. patients or communicate or mm. work in that environment. And I think working as a CSW gives you an advantage oh, as 100%. well. I go into a ward now and I feel comfortable. I'm super comfortable like, in wards now. I know where yeah. to like. Oh, is the patient cold? Oh, do you know where the where the yeah. linen is? And I'll yeah. just go get it myself. Like. So, yeah, I think things like that add mm-hmm. to, I feel like when day one does come, you'll be, yeah, you'll be prepared. I'll be prepared, I yeah. Agree. I, I definitely feel like um, sort of starting placement early gives you a piece of confidence that you that you never had. Because I remember second year starting placement. Actually, I didn't start it here. I started it that, that far, far away place. Same. <laughs> In the land. In the land, far, far away. <laughs> And I remember, like, my first week, I was a nervous wreck. And yeah. I remember, like, taking history from patients and just, I didn't want to speak because I just was so scared. Yeah. Doing examinations. I was actually shaking on oh, the walls. It was so bad. I was like, I remember once I was taking, I was examining a patient. I think it was like an abdominal examination. Mm-hmm. And I was shaking. And the patient was like, Are you okay? I'm like, Yes. How <laughs> can the patient ask you, Are you okay? She's like, 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 Oh, it's fine. You don't have to, you don't have to be nervous. It's okay. And I'm like, Yes. Because I was doing it in front of the clinical skill staff. Yeah. So then that's an extra added pressure because someone's watching you do something. Yeah. But I would definitely say that having placement, like you said earlier on, gives you, like, right now in my final year, mm-hmm. I can see myself being a doctor in the next, what, five, six months. I mean, you have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> like, you have no choice. You have no choice. <laughs> um, I, I can actually, I feel very comfortable when yeah. I speak to patients now. I feel comfortable to be, like you said, being on the wards. Like, I, I fit, no matter which hospital I go to, yeah. I fit, I can fit easily into the team. Yeah. Because I've been doing this since I've been, I was in second year. Yeah. Um. So I, I've, I've, to, I've, to be honest, I love placement. I, I love it. 
there are days where I wake up and it's very early, but these are only on the days where my placement is far away. I wake up, it's dark. I come home, it's dark. Oh, Jesus. Who wants to see the light? Aline. <laughs> Who wants to see the light? No, I... Trust me, I remember second year. I always tell people this. The second year was the darkest year of my life in medical school. Yeah. Because I had placement beginning of the year in that far, far away place. Yeah. And the funny thing was, like, obviously, first year is so chill. Like, you just have, your, you just have like, lectures. Yeah. Couple lectures here, day, PDL. Yeah. And then occasionally, like, you go to clinical skills and have... Do you know how much time I watch do first year? Oh, listen, I was constantly doing that place and chilling in my bedroom with myself. <laughs> Um, but second year comes, you have yeah. two days of placement. Yeah. You have to wake up super early. Because the bus leaves the, the town bus, at seven. Exactly. And if you're not, if you're not on that bus, you're catching a train to placement. Yeah. Um, so I remember like waking up super early. It was dark. Mm. Like you're saying, coming back home and it was dark. Yeah. I was tired because obviously it's a shock to my system. And on top of that, you still have to what? Study. You have to study. Yeah. So I just remember like crying a lot, thinking this is too much. Yeah. <laughs> this is too much. But thank God it all works out in the yeah. end. You get used to it after yeah. a while. The thing is, like, people are like, oh, does placement get easier? I wouldn't say it gets easier. It's exactly what you said. You just get used to get it. Get used to it. Honestly. Like, so this week I've just had, I've literally, I've moved to, um, so we're both living out of um, where we go uni. Yeah. So um, I live in that far, far away place. I'm living there maybe for a few months now. And I'm living on site at the hospital, but I still have to come back for uni stuff here. Yeah. I still do life. And you know what? I've been busy, but you know what? I have to just get on and have, get things exactly. done. Exactly, you can't complain about it because it's part of the degree. And it's adulting. Mm. So, yeah. Exactly. So, did we go into what actual placement is? Because some people might not know no. the entail. Okay. Yeah. So, basically, placement is um, for anyone who does medicine or any like healthcare related degree. Mm. Um, what you do is you go to a hospital or a health healthcare setting, so like general practice mm. or um, community clinics stuff like yeah. that um and depending on what year you have what year you're in you, you have different responsibilities and different things you do so earlier on in the degree you're more to just there like watching what's going on speaking to patients gathering information yeah. learning how to sort of communicate and collate information that you will eventually refine those skills mm. as you go through the years examining yeah. patients very basic bread and butter skills yeah very yeah. like your, your simple stuff that you're going to be using like basically to become a consultant mm. so like examining patients speaking to patients and then like obviously relaying that information back to doctors yeah um who will assess you see like what you could have asked more yeah what you could have done better stuff like that mm. what's been your favorite placement oh i would say my favorite placement would have to be in oh really which yeah. one i would say i liked general practice <gasps> No way, yeah. you. I actually like it. Why? So I've always been, oh, I find GP life this, GP life that, I can't do GP life. But the why I like GP was maybe because obviously the previous years you're in group, you're in partners. Yeah. But in fifth year you have your own room. Yeah. Your own login. You sit down. You see your patients. You have a list of patients that you can see. I really felt more like a doctor. Okay. I I really felt like a doctor because I was seeing my patients. I was speaking to them. Yeah. And then I would like tell them not just speak the information, but I would be giving them information. Yeah. And be like, oh, this is what I think's wrong, like stuff like this. Mm. Um, but you know, wait, wait for the doctor to come in and like you know, he will decide whether or not um, we have anything else that we need to do. So I really felt like, wow, that like, I'm making progress and. And a lot of the times when I was going to speak to my patients, it gave me such good feedback oh. right there and then. So yeah. it was super rewarding. Yeah. And you had time to speak to people. So I really love general practice. I really, really love my placement. That's actually really surprising. I know. Yeah. yeah. Mine is, so I think on our first podcast, you said you're looking into going to like maybe PED surgery yeah, yeah. or ox and gynae surgery. And I was like more GP. My favourite placement has been paediatric. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, we went to went to Blackburn and one thing I love about the peds there is that I think because it's a lot bigger than when we are mm. quite in a small town so everything is hands-on and you're a student yeah but you're an actual member of the team yeah. so my favorite bit of the placement is something called the children's observation and assessment mm-hmm. unit so it's kind of like a mini A&E I call it for Aww. kids yeah so kids come in and you're the one who speaks to them or yeah. speaks to the parent you do all the examinations and all the observations mm. and then you write up their notes and you you write down what you think they have yeah. you discuss it through with the doctor and then you and the doctor then do the patient again oh, okay. and I felt I felt very useful and I learned yeah. a lot 
Yeah. Like it really consolidated my knowledge because when I had my placement, it was like winter. So everybody had like, uh, yeah, bronchiectasis. Oh, bronchi- not bronchiectasis. Imagine. Bronchiolitis and oh, croup and all these kind of like yeah. upper respiratory tract infections. So because I was seeing it so often, used to I had to read. Otherwise, I'll just be looking at bread. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that was actually my favourite placement. Even though it was a long daily commute, mm-hmm. I think I really learned a lot. Because mm. I never really liked peas before, but going away from that placement, I was just like, wow, yeah, yeah I really liked it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The placements that change your mind about something and tend to be the ones that are quite impactful. Yeah. Because um, obviously I like peace and obstacle gaining. So doing those placements is like, yeah, I expected it. Like, yeah. I've enjoyed it. But the ones that I'm like, I didn't, didn't like this going in in the first place, but now I'm like, mine's changed about it. Yeah. They've been the sweetest ones. Yeah. I also think what makes a placement a placement is the people you work with. Definitely. Definitely. It's the staff you work with. It's them making you feel included. Yeah. Like, part of, like you were saying, you felt useful and you felt like you're part of the team. Yeah. So I, that's how I felt when I was doing my GP placement. Mm. But also those po- points in fourth year when I was on ward placement, where I felt useful. Like doctors would be asking you to do stuff and stuff like yeah. that. And you felt like, wow, like I needed, I'm not just a medical student wandering around asking, hi, is there any patient I can take a history from, please? Yeah. Is there like an exam? You please? really feel, I mean, you're not, <laughs> you're not at the bottom of the ladder. In second year, you're literally, <laughs> you literally just find the corner and, and just stay you, out of everyone's way. Literally, that's but, what I used to do. Yeah, but you know, third year, you're a bit higher up mm. the ladder because you know what? Go take some bloods, you're exactly. a bit more useful. Fourth year, oh, go put a cannula, exactly. you're a bit more useful. Uh, fifth year, you're basically one of the F1s. Yeah, you're an unpaid F1. Listen, I was screaming in my ward placement. I'm basically, I'm, pay me. I'm like, pay me. I'm doing a job as an F1 and I've never been paid for this. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great experience. I'm not going to lie. I loved every single member to work. Yeah, fifth year. I remember the first week of fifth year. I was like, oh, wow. Like, this would probably less famous to be doing. Take, make, making out some wood rounds yeah taking bloods putting in cannulas doing all these things I'm like oh okay. I mean it's for your own good <laughs> I mean I loved it so I was like yeah yeah but still like, I think the more hands on you are the better your your placement yeah. is like yeah. even if it's just I don't know you've seen like an operation mm. and you're scrubbing in and you're holding this and that yeah. like 100% yeah the more involved you are with something A you remember it better yeah because I remember in my finals in fourth year when there were things that popped up, I was like, I remember, I remember this illness, I remember this disease because I remember patient X that had this. Yeah. Even when I was studying before it, it made it easier because I remember a lot of things based on what I'd seen. Yeah. And um, B, it also helps when you're there. Yeah. Because people actually were more likely to inv- help you out, get your your requirements. Yeah. For whatever it's in your histories, listening to you, whether it's in your skills doing because they're like, yeah, this person's always here helping out. That's, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. To give a tick thing. Mm. So what would be like your top tip for placement? Um, make the most out of your placement. Yeah. Don't just stand in the wood, one corner staring. Yeah. Ask to be involved. Yeah. I think mine is basically the same. Use your voice because sometimes um with teaching hospitals some members of staff are new and mm-hmm. they don't really understand your requirements but you do you're mm. the you're the one that has to get it signed exactly. off you, you have to get this skill signed off or this verbal presentation signed off or that skill signed off so what you can do is essentially you've got to be firm and put your foot down because mm-hmm. some people they may not, not they may not know or believe that you as a medical student are allowed to do this skill yeah. so I've had incidences where it's like oh you know um do you have any patients that I can see and maybe do some bloods or do this skill mm-hmm. for and they'll be like yeah and then they'll come and then they'll just do everything and, and it's like I've missed my opportunity yeah. to practice and to get that signed off so you have to let them know mm-hmm. but when you see them you'd be like oh is it okay if I just yes. yeah you have to really put your foot down otherwise opportunities will pass you by exactly you can't yeah. expect people to tell you because the thing about placement, it's not like when you're in university and you're having lectures and things are being spoon fed. Mm-hmm. You have to go out there and seek this opportunity. You have to go out there and be vocal about what it is that you require or what it is that you want help with. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't go to be arrogant and be like, this is a list of things I need to get done. Please find it for me. Yeah. No, it's more like, oh, please, I'd like to practice taking blood. Yeah. I'd like to practice doing this. So people know that you want more learning opportunities. Yeah. Because sometimes they think you, you're just observant, but it's like, in five years, do you want an observant doctor or a competent doctor? Exactly. So, yeah. I like that. 
I wanted to ask, what's been your worst placement experience? Ooh. Should I give you some time to think? I can tell you mine. Yeah, you go for yours. So, um, Obs and Gynae, but it was a different trust. Um, there's some confusion about our requirements and stuff. Yeah. Um, so we, we were allowed to write in the notes. Our medical mm-hmm. said that as long as someone countersigns mm-hmm. what we do. So this consultant, um, no, not consultant, registrar, um, me and my clinical partner, you know, we're just there. We're doing different skills and speaking to patients and, um, seeing women come in acutely mm. with different like pregnancy mm. problems. So the midwife goes to us, yeah, just um, write what you see in the history about the history in the notes. So we did that. And then this registrar came in and she absolutely ripped into us. She started like, she wasn't yelling, but it was a very like stern oh. telling off like, yeah. how dare you, like your, what if this happens? Yeah. And literally just really, really telling us off. Well, in the back of our head, we know like it's written down by our med school that we yeah. can do this. And that's one of the things where you have to be so humble mm. because right there and then, like, let's be honest. Okay. They may be qualified as a doctor, but when it comes to your requirements, your, you know, your med school, mm. they're wrong, but we have to do, just go about your tongue and then you've got to take it up with, if it really bothered you, if they take were really, yeah. yeah, if they were really, really, really mean or bad to you, then you take it up with like the relevant person. Mm. So humility. Yes, I've learned yeah. that a lot on places. Well, you learn humility from the minute you step on the walls. You you realize that you know nothing. Yeah, you are the lowest rung on the ladder. Mm. And yeah, ward rounds make you feel. It depends who's doing the ward rounds. Ward rounds make me feel sleepy. Oh, it depends. No, I think it depends. Like, Not all ward rounds. Yeah, um, I think second year and third year I hated ward rounds. Yeah. I never got. Any, I never understood what was going on. Yeah, especially because you're so alert in training. I don't have a clue what, what those words meant. Yeah, but now I know what's going on, and they actually include me. Yeah, and they give you teaching. If mm. they give you teaching, the ward round is worth it. It's hard though to teach and do the ward round it because is. some some um specialties, like let's say um elderly medicine, the ward rounds can go on yeah, to take a long time. Oof, for lunch day. you come back. The ward round is still so going. Yeah, but yeah. I've had some really because there's this um consultant that. Everyone said it was a bit like mean or whatever, but I think I had a really good ward round yeah. with him. Like he'd ask you really intense questions, and sometimes you feel like a fish out of water because you don't know the answer. Yeah. So he'd be like, "So they have this and this. What do you think? Okay, what would you do next? Mm. Okay, well, how would you manage them? Mm-hmm. What are the complications you want to make sure?" Uh-huh. But because you're, he's asking you these questions, he's firing you. You're ma- he's making you really think, think and yeah. learn. So I feel like some people don't like that, but listen, it's going to be your job. So yeah, I think it's better. To- be able to mess up these questions now than when you're actually a doctor. You yeah. don't need that doctor that doesn't know anything. <laughs> I don't like the fact though that as you go up like through med school, you can't be like, I don't know anymore. Do you know what? I still say I don't know, and I think it's important as a medical student if yeah. you ask a question and you genuinely don't know, say I don't know. Yeah. Then start speaking stuff, and the person looks at your face like, I'm very concerned about yeah. what this person's saying. You yeah. Know? Um, but I'd say yeah, don't be afraid to say I don't know, and also. Take your time to think about the answers. Because sometimes, a lot of the time, I know the answers. But I doubt myself. And yeah. I don't say the answer. And I'm like, oh, I actually And then they right. tell you the right answer. Exactly. Have you seen that gift, yeah? Where someone's sitting down here and then they just like... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I can't even convey it on the podcast. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Oh. So I, I have those moments, like, literally all the time I'm facing. Because they also ask me a question. Mm-hmm. And I know it. And I just feel like... And, also, and I was like, wait, what? I need that answer all along. Yeah. But I just didn't say anything. You have to believe in yourself. Exactly. Don't doubt yourself because that knowledge that you've been studying for it's yeah. there. Just, you know, speak it. Well, yeah. nothing, if you are wrong, like, there's nothing wrong with it. That's why I really admire the people, like, in my year that they're just willing to always give mm, an answer, answer, even if it's wrong. Mm-hmm. But they give the gut answer that comes to them, which is right, which is most of most what happens to yeah. most people it's just that when you're too scared and mm-hmm. it kind of um, affects how you're perceived as mm. well when the feedback you exactly. get so have you had a think about your my worst placement oh yeah yeah so i'm saying <laughs> psychiatry i don't really like my psychiatry placement really no. i actually really liked it. i enjoyed the teaching the yeah. teaching was super good and like the people i was with made it amazing this is both third year and fourth year i don't like the placement Oh. I think psychiatry is just not for me. Okay. So, like, I love the content and I yeah. love, like, everything, but I just did not like the placement. I don't know what it was, but I just didn't enjoy it. Fair I didn't enjoy being on the, like, on the psych wards. The clinics were okay, but it just worked for me. Yeah. The whole placement was just not for me. Uh, okay. I would say 
I'm not I'm not gonna go into psychiatry. But when I say I'm gonna go into GP, people say you're basically going into that. Wow. But um I found it interesting because I'd never encountered mm. it before. So I just yeah, I just found it interesting. Yeah. I mean I just find it interesting, but I just I just I just didn't feel com- not comfortable but I just don't know. I just didn't like the whole thing. Yeah. I, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying about what I just like it's just not for me. I could feel that like it just wasn't for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not for you, it's not for you. Exactly. So, any closing? We already kind of gave tips. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have, yeah. Anything you're looking forward to in the next week? Um. So, I've got three or four more weeks after my placement. My placement that month. I'm saying looking forward to getting more hands-on. I want to get to theatre. Yeah. So, I'll, yeah, I really am looking forward to getting more hands-on in this placement and in my next two as well. Mm. Definitely. I'm looking forward to being in my recluse accommodation on hospital. <laughs> so I could just go placement, study, focus, and then be on a plane soon. Woo! Yeah. Elective, is, elective is pending. So um, on Instagram, I just remembered now, I've done a, what do you call it, a quiz, a, a vote thing about um, what people wanted in the next episode. And we were supposed to talk about the things they don't tell you before med school. Yes. However, um, we are going to postpone that to the next episode because our lovely friend, our lovely fresher friend, Michael, yes, Michael. he's um, he's going to come on. So we're a bit old. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd, we thought we'd um, include like a fresher's perspective. Exactly. So we'll have him on and we'll talk about the things you don't know before starting med school. Yeah, the things they don't tell you before you start med school. Yeah, because there's a lot of things you've, find out yes. and your bank account finds out <laughs> your, your bank account your emotional health yeah everything, so. so yeah we're going to talk about that and if anyone would like us to talk about anything um if you follow us on instagram at simply medics and if you drop us an email simply medics at gmail.com we'd be happy to reply because i know some people have messaged asking questions about work and stuff so yeah, more than happy to reply, give advice and um, just take on board any feedback you have. And thank you again, everyone, for listening. We can't do this without you. Yes, thank you so much for listening. And we hope whenever you're listening to this, wherever you're listening to this, that you have an amazing week. Yes. All right, bye. Bye. bye.